Welcome to the Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode numbers 109 and 110, J.E.D.P., The Mount Ebal de Fixio, and C.S. Lewis. Part 4. We begin this week's discussion of the position of the critics, Drs. Rolston and Cargill, with a lengthy post from Peter Vanderveen on his Facebook account, edited to reduce its length and clarify its meaning. The Times of Israel published an article today on our technical article on the Mount Ebal lead tablet. They quote one of the most renowned U.S. epigraphers, my colleague Christopher Rolston. Chris, who did not study the actual tablet, and has not even studied the high-resolution scans, is quick to express his negative judgment. To the untrained reader, his brief negative critique that what may appear to be letters to the wishful eye are in fact only, quote, some striations in the lead, is completely misleading. His judgment is not as devastating as he may believe. End quote. In terms of the evidence itself, and the rational case that can be built from it, Dr. Vanderveen is certainly correct that Rolston's critique is not as devastating as he may believe. But I think Vanderveen underestimated how truly devastating Rolston's deliberately contemptuous and, perhaps deliberately, uninformed opinion has been to the untrained reader those non-experts who will follow expert opinion wherever it leads them, even if the expert is sawing off the limb he is sitting on, and also to the others in the field who were awaiting Rolston's ex-cathedra declaration on the scholarly article to know how they should respond. The critical tsunami that has been unleashed against this little lead tablet is truly a sight to behold. Lost in the whole circus is the fact that Rolston, quote, did not study the actual tablet and has not even studied the high-resolution scans, end quote, though he was offered the opportunity to join the team that did. We continue with Dr. Vanderveen's post. I would be the last to argue that there could not be alternative ways to read the incisions and that all the letters that my colleague epigrapher believed to be letters are letters indeed. I probably have always been one of the harshest critics in the team, and I have not always made friends because of that. Even so, I have received full support by the main author, Scott Stripling, who was so supportive and open-minded that I hold him in great esteem as a wonderful friend and colleague. He is a true gentleman. We should pause here and note that there was no enforced orthodoxy, quote, by the main author, Scott Stripling, despite the vehement disagreements between epigraphers on this project. This portrait by one of his closest colleagues on this project should be kept in mind as we review the critiques being offered of Dr. Stripling in the media circus of the critics, and as a contrast to the critics themselves, who most definitely have an orthodoxy to enforce. Back to the post. 
Chris Rolston's harsh criticism is completely unfair. Not all authors agreed on the maximalist reading proposed in the article, but my work led me eventually to believe that there is some substance to the proposed reading. Bulges seen on the back of the tablet prove that those letters which are true letters indeed are truly there. These clear letters, when taken together, all by themselves give some substance to the proposed reading. Dr. Vanderveen continues This being so, this already yields the basic reading, You Shall Die, and by Yahoo. This is followed by an ox-like aleph, the first initial letter of Arur, curse. If all the other letters were to be pure imagination, we already have our basic formula there. But then there is the finely incised ox head in the lower right half of the inner B inscription, which is not a mere scratch, but a beautifully shaped iconic ox head of the quality seen at Serabit el Kadim, the basic words are on inner B. Vanderveen goes on to detail other clear letters and tool-made incision marks on both the inner B and the outside front to accuse the critics of using their imagination to suppose that such regular repeating patterns would occur and reoccur naturally, concluding with a plea for a serious academic discussion. Quote, Having looked at this for many months, we argued and disagreed all the way long. I feel comfortable enough to defend the case. Let's, however, remain gentlemen and discuss the matter in an open-minded spirit. End quote. And this is precisely what is missing in this discussion. Gentlemanly open-mindedness. The critics' minds are clearly closed, and have been since the find was announced, no matter how they pretend otherwise, and in the face of, if not overwhelming, at least substantial evidence in support of the claims of the article, which they do not deal honestly with, but instead ignore, 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 and deny deny, deny. Everything we've already said about the critical response as found in Dr. Rolston's work is also evident in our second critical voice, but intensified, and given a ragged, polemical edge. To follow up and flesh out this claim, we turn our attention to Dr. Cargill, who is all about rhetorically managing the narrative. In his interview with MythVision on YouTube, immediately after castigating Scott Stripling for engaging in a media campaign to short-circuit the academic process, Dr. Cargill continues to engage in his own media campaign to short-circuit the academic process. This is typical of his virtue-signaling rhetoric as he also begins the interview with a paean to the beauties of the adversarial engagement of scholars in which we don't call each other names or make personal attacks. Quote, I really try to have everybody get along with each other. I'm a positive person. 
I want people to get along and follow the academic processes. End quote. As if the character assassination of Scott Stripling, in which he engages freely and with evident delight throughout this interview, is wholly benign and in keeping with his own scholarly benevolence. One need only imagine Cargill's response to what I said above about his media campaign to short-circuit the academic process to realize how very vicious he is being to Scott Stripling and the other members of the Mount Ebal team. A comment from Dr. Vanderveen's Facebook page on May 22 from a participant in the discussion is relevant here. Quote, I'm sorry to speak up about this, but Cargill has a long history of being judgmental and hateful to others, especially on the blog site he maintained before working for BAR. He seems to have served that editorial position with courtesy and competence, but he might be migrating back to the spirit he was known for before being appointed as the key intellectual force at BAR. I hope not, but few of his peers attack others with the same intensity. To be clear, your response did not question his competence or integrity, and neither do I. Simply put, I don't like the judgmental tone he uses. End quote. Apart from this controversy, I do not know Dr. Cargill, and I am not, thus, in a position to make the sort of claims that this commenter does about his past actions and character. But I can say that I recognize the portrait as an accurate portrayal of his character in this game. Quote, Let me just say from the outset, there is no inscription on that so-called inscription, Cargill proclaims, with a certainty of authority, an authority that awed his MythVision interviewer, into apologizing for daring to think a different viewpoint might have some validity. The arrogation of expert certainty to a topic like this, and the cowing of others into agreement that results from it, will take one quite a long way in academic circles, in spite of a demonstrable ignorance of the facts about which he speaks, giving him the benefit of the doubt that it is ignorance, and not a more cynical denial or suppression of the facts. We have only to think of the certainty with which Paul Ehrlich proclaimed the mass starvation of populations in the 1970s, the death of our oceans by 1980, and the series of predictive dooms across his academic and public career that have all been spectacularly wrong. Yet Paul Ehrlich is still taken seriously, still speaks with the voice of authority. The Academy rewarded him with a full professorship, he is now emeritus, of biology at Stanford University. He is still considered an academic expert on this topic, and he's never admitted to being wrong. It sounds very familiar to me. Dr. Cargill as Van Der Veen points out, has never actually examined the lead tablet, nor engaged seriously with the evidence or with those who have. Like Dr. Rolston, Dr. Cargill does not suspect or doubt the findings 
of the Mount Ebal team. He knows there is no inscription. He knows it is just a, quote, hunk of lead on which nothing is written. Trust him. He's an expert. This is the informal fallacy of appeal to authority, and nearly the entire case of the critics of this find relies on it. Plainly stated, Dr. Cargill is a bully who flexes his academic bona fides and expects everyone to fall in line. I know the type from my years in academia. I encourage our listeners to visit Peter Vanderveen's Facebook page, in which Cargill carps repeatedly and viciously against Peter and the team, culminating in a deeply frustrated Vanderveen proclaiming, Robert, I feel you are not the modest and open-minded scholar we wish to converse with. It is totally okay that you disagree, but it is also completely our right to wholeheartedly disagree with you. I respect you as a scholar, but you do not treat your opponents as such. Quite telling, I would say. To cut things short, we do not think you have a case. You cannot convince me that the letters on the recto are mere scratches or something in the lead, as also Chris charges, as they are clearly man-made stylus marks. I see no way around that. This being the case, this opens the door to looking at the rest of the tablet. End quote. It is precisely this opening of the door that Cargill's media campaign is designed to frustrate, and by whatever means necessary. The examples I would like to present of my charges against Dr. Cargill are too numerous for our allotted time. But as a final example, I would like to return to his refrain that this find is simply, quote, an unprovenanced hunk of lead. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening, and remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview and be a Christian.